Well, if you have visited my home, you know that the bathroom off the kitchen, uh, off the kitchen area, has a splotch of bluish gray paint right in the middle of the wall. And frankly, it's been there for about eight months now. It is an unfinished project. And if you are like me, I'm sure you can look around at your own dwelling place or even take an inventory of your very own life. And you too have many unfinished projects, unfinished goals, unfinished education, unfinished books, unfinished dishes, unfinished chores, unfinished errands. And the reality is, though, you know, a lot of these projects just frankly must remain unfinished. Just given who we are, given our, our circumstances. So just think of the external and unexpected life pressures. You know, naturally, it means that when we experience these things, we have to put down one thing and then shift our attention to another thing. For example, the need to pay the bills means that you may have to stop dreaming and planning about that road trip and go get a job. A loved one's cancer diagnosis brings the necessity of the necessity of needing to free up bandwidth in order to provide care for our loved ones. And these are just two examples of the external pressures that then force us to take up projects and then simply put them down. And then you can think about all the internal issues. I mean, frankly, we're lazy. We simply just don't want to finish what we started. Maybe that bluish-grayish paint will stay there for my lifetime. To the discouragement of my wife. Another thing, we, are, we lack commitment. We're too easily distracted. We begin one thing, but then when another attractive thing struts itself by, our self-control is displayed to be as about, about as great as a toddler's is in a toy store. We also lack wisdom. We bite off more than we can choose. So we don't properly count the cost before we embrace uh, the project, or perhaps uh, we wrongly assess our own abilities or inabilities, our time, our energy, our capacities. I mean, frankly, we are such weak and feeble creatures, and our unfinished projects are reminders of all of our inabilities. It shows us our track record of not being able to get things done. But thank God that He is not like us. In that every project he undertakes, he brings to completion. Our passage this morning is found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You can turn there with me. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And it is all about God's sovereignty and determination to finish what he started, particularly his plan of salvation for you, Christian. So how this fits into the larger plan of our sermon series, you know, we're looking at living in grace, counseling the word. So we're looking at the Bible promises here that help us when we frankly seem discouraged or we feel discouraged in the midst of our Christian life. When we feel imprisoned still in the sin that we are so desiring to get rid of. And we know, and if you are like me, at times we look at our own experience and frankly this brings a significant degree of darkness. We wonder... If God says that we are new creatures, we look around and wonder why, why we aren't being renewed faster. We feel perhaps maybe we question our salvation. We wonder if God has even delivered us or if the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to rescue us from our sin. And so we looked at the wonderful news that every sin we struggle with and the desires that give birth to sin are common to man. 
They're common to man, and God knows about them. And yet, and because of them, in fact, he sends Jesus Christ to die on the cross for them. So indeed, we are new creatures. Indeed, God has undertaken this role to sanctify us and purify us until he returns. And here in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, we see without a doubt that the completing of the good work that God has begun in us, he indeed will bring it to completion. This letter was, is written and is full of encouragement. It's written to the church at Philippi, a city in modern Greece. And even though our passage is in 1-6, I'll go ahead and read verses 3-6 to six to give you some context. Here Paul breaks out in thanksgiving and a prayer. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Again, our focus is on 1.6. And it says there, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So this morning we want to unfold how this verse ought to change our beliefs, behaviors, our attitudes... In four different ways. Basically, it's, it's application. But before we get to application, uh, we need to understand the verse. So we have an explanation. So here's an explanation of the passage. This verse obviously is meant to be an encouragement to the Christians. Again, it is a famous verse of encouragement that it is good to hold it close to our hearts. So that when we wonder how exactly are things going to be completed, we can turn to this verse and understand and Use it to minister to our soul in the power of the Spirit. The structure of the verse is plain there. Firstly, we see there that Paul is confident. In English it says, I am sure of this. He's positive, without doubt. And then secondly, we see what he is confident will happen. And you can break that part into three. He who began a good work in you will also bring it to completion. And then he gives a time reference at the day of Jesus Christ. So the summary, he who has worked salvation in you by giving you the spirit as you receive the word of God. This is the good work that he's talking about. They were born again. They became Christians. He will also bring you to final salvation. The words here are really interesting. It speaks about him beginning the work. So he who makes a beginning in you, this good work, he also will make an end of it. And these two words here, this beginning the work and then the end of it, or completion of it, really speaks of the whole entire life cycle of this good work. And Charles Spurgeon, he says that this is good. It's so evidently good, this good work of salvation, because it benefits everybody. The individual is freed from sin, let's say, let's just take the freedom from addiction that, that some of us might, have, might know even today. We are freed from this addiction, even though we certainly still struggle with it. We are no longer mastered by it. And then, so we give it up. So we benefit from it. But not only that, though, you can imagine if I'm giving up sin, then my family's going to benefit from it, too. 
If I am, if I was once in slavery to, let's say, sexual morality, I'm giving that up, and then my family begins to benefit from that as I commit myself to them. Society benefits from it as well. If I spend a whole entire decade or decades looking at pornography or visiting the gentlemen's clubs around here, right? Doesn't society benefit from me saying no to those things and then yes to godly things? The the refusal of the ungodliness and then the embracing of caring for people made in God's image. Society benefits from this. So evidently is it a good work because it is God who works it in us to conform us more into the very image of his son. This is what is called, a fancy word for this is sanctification. Sanctification, where God sets about the process of making us more like his son. So summary, he who has worked salvation in you will bring it to completion. We see this idea of we are saved already without a doubt, but then there's also an aspect by which we are being saved, or salvation is already, but at the same time it is not yet he who has made a beginning of it, will indeed make an end, completion, purpose. This definitely can't be said of us. This faithfulness here is definitely can't be seen in us. I mean, sure, you guys might finish some things, and even the most disciplined people, let's say they finish everything, but then there's that one thing. There's still a universe of difference, isn't there? A universe of difference between not completing one thing Versus leaving nothing unfinished. A universe of difference there between not completing one thing versus not leaving anything unfinished. And you see that comparison between us and God here? Paul is encouraging us to recognize our limitations and then to look over at the sovereign power, absolute sovereignty of God, who in his unfailing character is dedicated to bringing about and fulfilling his plans through us to the praise of Jesus. It's important to be reminded of these things because if God is just like you, just like us, operating off of a limited amount of knowledge, a limited amount of wisdom, working with an exhaustible power band, and you know, we get tripped up by external and internal pressures and sins even, I mean, if God is like that, then our salvation, frankly, is in big trouble. And then as God draws us out of the kingdom of darkness and sets us on the path of the kingdom of light, if God is just like us, we're in big trouble. We're doomed to fail. But thank God, just as he began the good work in his sovereign power, so he completes it by his sovereign power. You know, if, you're, if you are visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, notice here that God's work of saving us, once again, is called a good work. Oh, you can ask the question, well, in the big picture scheme of things, why exactly is it good? Well, this term good work is reminiscent of God's good work in creation found in the book of Genesis. Where God creates everything in the world, he creates you and me to be in relationship with him, and then he declares everything very good. It says he rests from his work. And he declares his work good. Of course, the problem there in the third chapter of the book of Genesis is that, is that man, though, screws it up because of his own sin and rebellion against this good God. And so man chooses by our own will, by our own free agency, and becomes bad. And then from Genesis on, we have the promise that God would make things good again. 
And we looked at that verse a number of weeks ago about how God has this cosmic plan to make all things new. And he begins with us, with people who repent and believe, with people who acknowledge his lordship over us. And so he begins this good work by making us new again. He does this by reconciling sinful man to himself and then us to one another. And the way he does this is through his son, Jesus Christ. He sends Jesus Christ to take on flesh. He lives a righteous life that we should have and dies for sinners in their place, bearing the wrath that we deserved on the cross. So he pays the penalty that we deserve. He bears the wrath that we deserve. And then he creates in us a new heart as he gives his very spirit in us and he causes us to be born again. As the Old Testament says, he removes our heart of stone and puts in a heart of flesh. He writes his law upon our hearts and causes us to obey his law and causes us, brings about a great love for him. This is the good work that God in his kindness and his grace begins to those who receive his word who turn from their sin and trust in Jesus for their salvation. You see how Christ, really, in this great work, even in Philippians 1.6, Christ is the center of this work, and Christ is the end of this work. Christ is the center of the work, and Christ is the end of the work. So God saves through, redeeming, through the redeeming work of Christ on the cross. Not only that, though, but God makes us more like Christ. It's not like he makes us as if uh, makes us the way we want to be, but he makes us more like his glorious son, as the Bible speaks about the Christian being conformed to the image of Jesus in Romans 8.28. And then there is a corporate aspect, a church aspect, where Christ's body, that is the church, is being matured and is growing up in the maturity of Christ, our head. See how, again, Christ is centered here and Christ is the end? And then even now, we, the church, are being prepared for and beautified for Jesus Christ. As Ephesians 5.26 says that Christ cleanses the church by the washing with the word so that, here's the purpose, guys, here's the purpose for sanctification, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. The fact that God's salvation plan has Christ for its end is clear, once again, from Philippians 1.6. Did you see the time reference of the passage? I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion, bring it to his purpose, bring it to his end, at the day of Christ Jesus. So this here is talking about the second coming of Christ. In Greek, it's a fancy word that speaks of the king's royal return since he's, he's been away. You know, just as kings would go, go about their business go out from their city and then return back, so it is for Jesus. Jesus, like all kings, the Bible says, will put all things in order at his return through the exercise of judgment and through the exercise of deliverance. It's interesting, many Christians, and maybe you can identify with this, you think of the, you read this verse like Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work and you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And really you think of it in a self-centered way. The return of Jesus Christ becomes all of a sudden a way to glorify our very own selves. And the coming of Christ is merely a termination point for what they don't like about themselves. Right? The second coming of Christ, in a self-centered way, becomes a termination point for what they don't like about themselves. And that's about it. Not much of the centrality of Jesus in the consummation of Jesus' kingdom... 
It's more like we see Jesus as our great maid. Once again, we shuttle that. Finally, we bring him in. We shuttle him in to clean us up so we can marvel at ourselves into eternity. It's like we bring the selfie culture into heaven. If we could only just take the right snapshot of ourselves and appear to be what we want to be, then we reach final salvation. As if God is determined in heaven to perpetuate our own selfish idolatries of ourselves. As if when we get to heaven, we glory about all of our magnificent patterns. As if we are the beautiful butterflies designed to glory in ourselves. I mean, no doubt we are designed to desire freedom from sin. That's in scripture. We're supposed to hope in that. Paul, the entire Bible holds out for us this day when we would finally be free from this wretched body of sin. The Bible tells us that we should want these things. We should desire the new bodies that we get in the new creation, but want them because they bring glory to Christ who is working these things out in us. So when he says he who began the good work of salvation through Christ will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, the purpose is for the return of the king. That's where your sanctification is headed. The glory of Jesus Christ. So that Christ would be supreme in your individual life and in the life of the church. So that your life would display the power of Christ as you are rescued from sin. So that your holiness would display the holiness of Christ. So that your love of the holy stuff, the holy things, would be the love of Christ. And on that day, when you will be free from sin, it's not to your own glory, but to the glory and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Friends, that's the grand goal of sanctification. And the question is for you and all of your efforts, you know, sanctification, uh, God works in us by his grace, right? We're supposed to exercise ourselves unto godliness. We are supposed to take up the means of grace to grow in our relationship with God. Is Christ's supremacy your grand goal in sanctification? Or as we've looked at before, is, is your own glory the end of your own sanctification? You know, there are a lot of reasons why people sign up to grow as Christians. Sometimes it's just so you can feel good about yourself. So you can look yourself in the mirror in the morning after you've committed some sort of sin and at least feel, according to your own standards, some degree of safety or feel like you're okay. The grand goal is living up to your own standards. Other people, they sign up for the church and they decide to grow. Sure, I'm going to go ahead and do that. They decide to do that as Christians in order to mature and get a wife. Christians have things together, so hey, I think I'll become one. I've known friends that have done this. And the grand goal is achieving your own picture of what life ought to look like. And you know what? Some of your pictures of what life ought to look like includes being respectable here in this community. Sure, it's not a big community. There's like 50 of us here. But at least it is a community where you can gain some degree of respect. Maybe you go about the means of grace of attending church or worshiping here on Sundays or going through the patterns and acts of humbling yourself through confession and repentance, reading your Bible, going to small groups, all to maintain your own reputation. Grand goal of being on top of something. Being respected through your own teaching. It's a place where you can be exalted for your own spirituality and righteousness. 
Friends, if that is you, the wonderful thing is that this passage reminds us that the grand goal of your growth, Jesus' attentions over you, is ultimately about Christ. No doubt it is about you once again. If you are involved in it, you are to desire perfection as you reach as you'll reach that when Christ comes. But you do that insofar as Christ is exalted. Our salvation has Christ for its center and Christ for its end. Friends, if you identify with the fact that your Christianity right now is not about Christ, then friends, turn from your sin and believe on Christ. And do it now because sanctification has a habit of conforming sinners to Christ. And this is just a warning because if we do not want you to be going through the decades and then you finally find yourself weeded out and walking away, right? Because if you're in this for yourself, you're going to walk away. It's just a matter of time. Once you find respect that you so crave in some other social circle, we'll say, who needs the church? When you find someone who loves you and who wants to be your spouse who isn't a Christian... You'll say goodbye to the bridegroom of Christ. When you find a way to manage, merely manage whatever issues you have, who needs the wisdom and power of Jesus? God's grand goal in your sanctification is the glory and supremacy of Jesus as his power to change is displayed in your changed life, friends. His character is seen as your character displays more of his. That's the big picture reason for why He will see it through to the end at the day of Jesus so that his citizens will live according to his law in perfection and bear the character of the king in perfection to everybody who looks on. They see Jesus. Friends, again, if you're visiting with us and know yourself not to be a Christian, you may be stepped in here because you think, generally speaking, you know, morality of Christians is a good thing and I want to be moral like Christians are. Once again, friend, it's not about you. The wonderful thing, though, is that you hear this word, you hear that it is about Jesus, as he is the king, the Lord over all, the Savior who bears the sin and the wrath that we deserved. All by his grace, all by his kindness, and he restores that relationship that people had in the beginning at the original creation, when everything was good. Friends, if you want a good work to begin in you, It begins by repenting of your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ who changes, who brings about this moral change that many of us appreciate. But again, it's the character of Jesus being worked in us through the power of the Spirit so that He would be magnified and exalted and praised throughout life and especially at this day. Friends, turn from your sin and believe and you will see that a good work will be begun in you and brought to fulfillment. That's an explanation of 1.6. Now let's look at four ways the preserving power of God should alter our beliefs, change our behaviors, and correct our attitudes. Now, I'm only addressing four. I'm sure you guys can think of a whole bunch, but we're going to spend time thinking about four. First, the preserving power of God brings freedom from, for God's children. The preserving power of God brings freedom for God's children. I say freedom because we have a sovereign God working in us to accomplish His purposes to complete what He started. You know, Christians oftentimes fall in the trap of 
legalism, thinking that it's all on us to complete what God started. And so we go about the Christian life in a legalistic manner. Legalism basically says, look, I get in good with God based on how good I am. We are justified. We are declared righteous by what we do. Uh, Legalism can also take a form as if we think that God gets us into salvation, but it's all up to us, apart from God's grace, to get us to the final end. In a book called The Cross-Centered Life, C.J. Mahaney describes the life of a Christian legalist you know, as a plate-spinning act, where Christians oftentimes are tempted to see all the things that God calls his, ch- his children to do in the Word as things that need to be maintained as opposed to avenues that God himself has designed whereby we can grow in our relationship with God. So we come to the, the issue of read the Bible, right? Read the Bible. We think that's a spinning plate on a rod that we balance prayer we come to that right it's another spinning plate that needs balancing and then you have going to church you got fellowship you got uh confessing sin you got fighting sin and all of a sudden these means of grace that god designed for us to grow in our relationship with god becomes a great performance act where we think god is always re-evaluating the relationship he made with us based on our performance i mean that is just so bizarre that we would even think about that. But if you're like me, you know what this is like uh, very much so. Bizarre, I say, because God is the one who initiated the relationship. But then we think that he reevaluates it based on our performance? When he approached us, he knew we were sinful people. He knew exactly what he was getting into, just as I mentioned earlier. You know, when someone undertakes a loan... You know, you want to know what exactly are the person's debts before the God takes them on. And so God, the greatest banker in the world with unlimited resources, comes alongside and says, Yes, I see all of your debts and I take them all on. Because for my unlimited resources, I pay them all back. And so it's so strange. We come to sanctification and growing in holiness as if God establishes the relationship with us, but then somehow forgets that we are faulty sinners who in fact can't always keep all the plates spinning. Yet we think that God does these things. Any plates dropped this week? Any wobbling going on in the Christian life? Did you set any down this last week? How did we as Christians get such a twisted view of our relationship with God? I mean, he's like any father, isn't he? Who communicates with his children, who desires to spend time with us tells us stories of his great past and what he's done and accomplished. He tells us about his kindness and his grace and even warns us about what's coming up on our own ways. We get so busy about doing. You know, we say, yeah, gotta have my time with God now, gotta pray now, gotta go to church now. And then when we say, okay, that's done, we can set it aside and what else can we do? And here I think the story of Martha and Mary from Luke chapter 10 Teaches us something, doesn't it? Rebukes us in this mentality. Martha, in her anxiety, was, quote, distracted with much serving, unquote, when Jesus arrived at her house. Distracted with much serving. Her doing didn't seem to be informed by her loving. That's the plate spinning act. We do, apart from love. But Mary, she was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching. Because she knew exactly who was before her, speaking to her, wanting to grow, wanting her to grow in a relationship with him. 
But knowing that God is faithful to finish what he starts, it frees us from performance anxiety, doesn't it? Frees us from performance anxiety before God and helps us enjoy our relationship with him as a father. Free to enjoy him as a father. Knowing that God has made us right through the blood of Christ and knowing that he is completing the work of salvation in us until the day of Christ, it brings freedom in the life of a Christian. Second thing, the persevering, sorry, the preserving power of God brings joy in the Christian life. The preserving power of God brings joy in the Christian life. This is a certain joy that has had independence upon God and freedom from self-reliance. If legalism works to get in good with God or to keep yourself in God's grace, if that were at all possible... What's at stake there is standing, justification, righteousness of God. Is God going to accept me? Um, that's never certain in, in legalism, as some of you guys know. Other people, though, as they spin their plates, they do so because they struggle to get that God is actually absolutely sovereign. That God actually has it covered. He has your sanctification covered. Through the means of grace and through his very own power. I mean, this is, this is a spinning plate act that is driven by a self-dependence, self-reliance that actually assumes the sovereignty of God. Assumes the position of the sovereignty of God. You, you take it upon yourself. This is you who have all of your bases covered in life. And you might call it diligence. You might call it responsibility. When in reality, your life is driven out of fear. And a deep need for control. You just think about the lonely servant of Jesus Christ, drawn out of darkness, heading to uh, to meet Jesus. We're all on our path, like like uh, Christian is in Pilgrim's Progress. You feel like you need to have all of your bases covered. Make sure everything is properly arranged in its position. The need for control, and it's driven out of fear. You're so fearful of your future circumstances. That you take on the responsibilities that God only has assigned to himself. Perhaps you feel like God is susceptible of the same things that you are. Unexpected and external pressures of life. Internal problem issues and sins. You guys know what this is like. If you lay awake at night, you know, you can't get a good night's rest. Even though you labor long and hard, it's just never enough. But thank God he is not like us, finite and dependent people. But instead he is infinite and independent, omniscient. He is all-wise, he is omnipotent. And because he is who he is, we can take joy in it. And relax and say, yes, God has it covered. His, pur- his purposes are never thwarted. You guys get this? His purposes are never thwarted. Which means for you in your sanctification, he will complete what he started. Isaiah 46, 9-11 says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. What I have said, that I will bring about. What have I planned? That will I do. His purposes are never thwarted like ours are. We might, commit, we might complete a whole bunch of things, but at the end of the day, we are those who are 
unfinishers. But God is the finisher who never leaves one thing. Not one of you guys, if you are Christians, doubting your own salvation, so discouraged by your own sin, he doesn't let one of his sheep be snatched out of his hands because he is who he is. I am God and there is no other. My purpose will stand and I will do all that I please, which includes, friends, bringing you to final salvation by his grace for his glory. God's promises never change as well. Numbers 23 verse 19. God is not like man. He is not like you. So you need not stress. God is not like man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should change his mind. He's not fickle. Does he speak and then not act? Sarcasm there. Rhetorical question. The answer is of course not. Does he promise and not fulfill? The answer is of course not. So if you are tempted to anxiety in your own Christian walk, so discouraged, thinking that sin still has you by the heels and will finally drag you back down into the dungeon of despair, just think about how absurd it is to think that Jesus' blood is not strong enough. That God, the all-sovereign, would send his son to live the perfect life, to fight off temptation, to defeat everything, to head to the cross, even though Satan wanted to derail him, to die on the cross for all of our sins, to be raised from the dead, but then say, ah, Satan just got me, came back around and crushed my head. Anxiety works to get us to question the character of God, to think that he actually has a very loose hand on us, It even says that we complete what God begins. How is it that we complete what God begins? I'm sure you were not the cause of God's first good work of creation. And the Bible says we definitely were not the cause of being born again. We are not the cause of this good work that he has already started. And so to think that we are the primary cause of completing what God has begun, apart from his gracious age, is is just... Simply not biblical. Christian, your God is unchanging in his good purposes because what is at stake is his own glory. You just know, you just think about the ways in which you get anxious about your own Christian walk because you want to complete everything uh, apart from the grace of God. God is so much more determined for his own glory than you could ever be. Even if you were the one who struggled worst with the greatest and worst anxiety disorder ever. God is so much more determined to bring about his glory to make sure everything is completed. All the I's are dotted and the T's crossed. All the boxes are checked off because it's his glory that is at stake. Some of you guys might struggle with anxiety disorders. uh, People call, people say, they diagnose you as having anxiety disorders and you freeze up in the middle of the situation. Like, friends, God never freezes up. External pressures are nothing to him. He is unfaithful in his character, dedicated to seeing that Christ would reign supreme. It leaves us with a question. If our works do not get us in good with God and our works don't improve on what God has already done, what then do we make of work? What then do we make of our work? This brings us to number three. The persevering, sorry, the preserving power of God actually produces faithful labors for today. The preserving power of God actually produces faithful labors for today. The anxious soul 
who is in constant battle with his own weakness, sleeps uneasy at nighttime. But the soul that rests in a sovereign and gracious God who gives us Christ, sleeps hard at nighttime. You know that feeling of letting your head hit the pillow after a long and hard day's work? It, it brings great satisfaction to look back to see all of your faithful labors. Well, friends, God calls us to long and hard days of faithful living, living in His grace according to the counsel of His Word, taking up the responsibilities He's given you, whether it be evangelizing, encouraging one another. Uh, this is a labor that God calls us to do. And there are some Christians who fret over their fruitfulness. They fret over their fruitfulness. This is the performance mentality. And so they think about fruitfulness instead of the faithfulness as a measure of faithful labor. So as you're drawn out of the kingdom of darkness, you're constantly thinking about how exactly am I going to bear fruit for the Lord? And so you, that brings you great anxiety, thinking that if you don't produce enough fruit, enough harvest, then God's not going to let you in. Friends, that's the performance, man, performance uh, mentality. Think about evangelism, for example. We don't want to confuse job, God's responsibilities with our responsibilities. Think about evangelism. Some say to be fruitful means that one ought to see converts. But the Bible clearly says that God will do what pleases him in this area. 1 Corinthians 3 verse 6 says Paul encourages faithfulness, but then he leaves fruitfulness to God. This is what 1 Corinthians 6 says. I planted Apollos water, but God gave the growth. That's fruitfulness left up to God. The results left up to God. And here we're just encouraged to go for faithfulness, faithful labors for today. And not only that, though, there are many instances where God purposefully determines that people would not bear fruit for a long period of time. So think about Jeremiah, for example. Years of ministry where no success or fruit would be seen if we define success by something tangible, something visible with the eye. And then think of Jesus. Are we ready to count Jesus' ministry a complete failure? Because at the end of his ministry, after he died, you know, it must have been a total disaster as everybody who once were following him were calling for his crucifixion. Is he a failure according to fruitfulness? Not at all. God will take care of fruitfulness. He calls us to faithfulness. There are some others who think that because God finishes what he started means I have reason to slack off. I can just kick back and give in to my laziness. I don't need to pursue God in spiritual disciplines. I don't need to battle sin, but this too would be against Scripture. Listen to Philippians 2. Actually, turn over there. Philippians 2, chapter, uh, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul tells the Philippian Christians, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but as much more in my absence, he says there, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So he's picking up on this good work that God has started, the good work that God has promised to bring it to completion. But then he introduces us that we too are to work. Work out your own salvation with, with fear and trembling. As I mentioned last time, that part of our sanctification is us getting on, by God's grace, the very avenues that God has designed so that we can grow in our relationship with him, grow in holiness. This is what Paul is commanding us to do. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. But look there. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God continues to work. 
He continues to will for his own will, for his own good pleasure, and at the same time, we are called to faithful labors for today. So there we see God's sovereignty and man's responsibility held together. They're companions. We as Christians want to strive to labor faithfully for today. Like Paul who says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It's interesting right here in 2 Timothy, you know, this is his last letter that we have before he's executed. He's writing to his beloved son, Timothy. In many ways, he is reviewing his life's work, his hard labor, all by the grace of God. And he lets his head hit the pillow, knowing that he put in the days and the years and the decades of faithful labor for the gospel's sake, entrusting God with the results, but then also trusting in God to bring him to final salvation. That's our example right there. Faithful labors for today, entrusting God with fruitfulness. Next, the preserving power of God brings us a hope for a better tomorrow. It's incredible all that the all this hope that comes along with the return of Jesus Christ. Freedom from sin, no more pain, no more tears, death will be no more. The establishment of a throne built on justice and righteousness and love and mercy and grace into eternity. And with the friends, with the turning of days, God's plan is ever closer to fulfillment. In his return, every wrong will be made right. Every injustice will see justice. For those who reject him, they are raised to judgment and eternal hell. But to those who love him and submit to him, we get to be with Christ forever and see him face to face. There will be no fear then, but reverent awe of our Savior, wonder and intimacy with the Lord and Savior. As the old hymn speaks of a hope for a better tomorrow, Based in the gospel, before Jesus Christ, we have pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. This is into eternity, friends, into eternity. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Strength for now, bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine. Every spiritual blessing in Christ given to us now in Jesus Christ. With 10,000 others. 10,000 beside. What a bright hope we have for tomorrow. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 puts it this way. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Kept in heaven for you. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That right there just summarizes everything we just talked about. God is blessed. Why is God blessed? Because he causes us to be born again, it says. To a living hope. Why is that hope living? Because Jesus himself is living. And we are birthed unto this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now how is it that we get it? How is it that we lay hold of it? Well, just as God caused us to be born again, so he preserves us by his power for what he has stored up for us already. It is his inheritance. And so he gives us birth unto the inheritance. He preserves his people for the inheritance. He even gives them the faith 
to lay hold on to the gospel until it is revealed. This is what it says, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded. How is it that you, friend, are being guarded when you feel so discouraged, when you feel trapped by your sin, inescapable, you feel like it is at least, you are friends, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, the last day, the return of Jesus Christ. So to conclude, in light of God's sanctification plan, this passage reminds us that we are not dealing with a God who is like us. Rather, he is a God who is not thwarted by anything outside of him, certainly not thwarted by anything inside of him, as he is all good, all righteous, all just, all merciful, all gracious and compassionate, a God who walks alongside his people, just like in the Exodus. Did God not promise his presence to his people? Did God not display his presence as he led them out of slavery under Egypt and to the land of promise? Well, friends, so he is doing with us. He promises his presence. He gives us his presence of Jesus. And then not only Jesus, but the spirit of Christ to walk with us as he promises to never leave us nor forsake us as we walk to the land of promise by his grace. God is a God who is zealous for his holy name. And friends, we need to trust in his zeal to never let his name be marred into eternity. And thus, he would never let one drop of his son's blood be spilled in vain. The power of Jesus' blood is that strong to actually accomplish your salvation, to actually remove the wrath of God that you deserve and to make it no more. Salvation has been accomplished, and surely it will be applied. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we praise you for your power. Because we know that if salvation were up to us, we could not win. Certainly we acknowledge that sin and death and Satan have not been destroyed by our works. That our heels are not strong enough to crush the serpent's head. But the only one powerful enough to rescue us from the dominion of sin... And bring us into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of your beloved son. Is the all powerful Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Lord we thank you for working such great power in us. The resurrection life. Just as the spirit who raised Christ from the dead. Worked in him. So Lord you say and we know that same resurrection power is working in us. Father, we pray that we would not trust in our own feeble ability and our attempts uh, to justify ourselves or to keep us in your grace. But Lord, we pray that you would help us turn once again to the gospel of Jesus Christ and see that there is grace upon grace upon grace. Father, if there are any discouraged here today who are tempted to wallow in their struggle with sin and feel trapped by sin, Lord, we pray that you would make your presence known to them, that you would make your freedom known to them, 
that they that they would see that in the Spirit's power they are enlivened and empowered to run faster than they ever could in this life. Lord, we pray that we would rejoice in our own weaknesses and boast in the gospel because it is that that frees us from the tyranny of sin. Father, we ask that you would hold us fast. And we know, Lord Jesus, that you promised you would. Help us to cling to the promises of God that you have so graciously given us in your word for your name and for your glory. Amen.